Now, in preparation for this morning's talk with Reverend Chris Kelly, who we, which we just had, I read and reread his amazing book, Getting On Toward Home and Other Sermons by the River. It's a collection of several of his funeral sermons and the perfect kickoff to our Lenten series of meditation on mortality. And it's good. It's that good. The messages, the humor, the seamless interweaving of the personal, the cultural, the scholarly citation. He makes Thomas Aquinas understandable. Humorous anecdotes and deep reflections on a life, on living and death. And it's all laid out plainly in language that make an English professor and his highly literate mother and father proud. As I read and made notes about this wonderful collection of sermons, I I felt my anxiety about this sermon this morning growing higher and higher. I wasn't wasn't sure at the time if Chris would be here, but he is, uh, to hear it, but it didn't matter because I know that many of you have told me that you've read the book, so you know the standard that's already been set. He told me this morning that he had edited those sermons, but that didn't help me. You know, it's the hardest thing to try to write a sermon where you're thinking about yourself writing a sermon. (laughs) And this Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, it's a special Sunday. When we recite the Great Litany, we're trying to adjust to our Lenten resolutions or not. And it's also the first week of a return of any kind of normal, as you heard me say earlier, masks, signing, communion, the passing of the peace, all are now fair game. So by any respect, it's a special week. Then there's the scripture reading. It's the gospel, Luke's telling of Jesus' temptation. It's a familiar story that I worried all week that somehow needed a completely fresh expression, or that's what I told myself anyway. And the usual commentaries I went to were no help, filled with simplistic expressions of the temptation of power and disobedience. One of them said, even the most powerful are not free from temptation. Well, duh. Another one said, Jesus' temptation reflects a step in the process of moving from student to teacher. Slightly more interesting, but still, in my heightened insecurity, not fresh enough. I found solace and a key to the sermon in Chris's description of his father, specifically his dad's twin interests and maybe even passions in the poetry of T.S. Eliot and Broadway musicals. In his case, the enormously successful 1960 musical, The Fantastics. And in that, I felt a deep kinship cut across the years between us. The poetry of Eliot And the American musical are, as I've said in so many words up here before, twin pillars of me being who I am. T.S. Eliot spoke to my angst-ridden adolescence with his sweeping dystopic vision of the wasteland or the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I memorized him in their entirety, and yes, I was that kind of nerd. His later conversion to Christianity powered my move into the priesthood. And I mean that very sincerely. And the musical seemed to give words, life, and hope to this small-town Indiana boy. And it still does, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So I turned first to Eliot. And his Ash Wednesday poem seemed a suitable place to go, given our recent service and this being the first Sunday in Lent. And it opens with a phrase worthy of the great litany we just heard. 
Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive towards such things. Eliot seems to speak of repentance, of turning, of metanoia, and renounces the sins of envy and covetousness. And think about from our great litany, we just heard, from all blindness of heart, from pride, vainglory, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and from all want of charity, good Lord, deliver us. Feels like they fit, doesn't it? And later, Eliot delivers an indictment that shook me out of my selfish desire to preach the perfect sermon. He said, and I pray to God to have mercy upon us, and I pray that I may not forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again. These matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, made me realize that God's doing the preaching not I. So get out of the way and let the Spirit take the wheel, or for those of you who want Jesus, take the wheel. So I tried that. Now in his short book about, about leadership in the name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, Henry Nouwen uses Jesus' three temptations as an object lesson in how to handle the temptations we all face. It's both a template for how Jesus will deal with temptation in his ministry and a model for us as followers of the Christ. Now, the first temptation, commanding the stones to turn to bread, speaks, per now on, to the temptation to be relevant. Speaks to control. Turn the stones to bread. Do something. It's a very real temptation to define ourselves by what we do. I realized the trap I had set for myself as I tried to put this sermon together was how I could do a good sermon, make it relevant. Whether it is or not, the point is, I was trying to define myself by what I do. And I'll be honest, and as many of you know, this is a huge trap for me, especially for someone having come to the priesthood relatively late in life, after a fairly successful life before this, by secular standards anyway. Now and struggled as well, having his Ivy League pedigree at Harvard disregarded in his later vocation of working with disabled. I sometimes find myself wanting to say something like, don't you know who I think I am? Or who I was? Or let me show you my awards. The devil wants Jesus to use his power to do something, and in so doing, reveal that he's no different than the rest of us mortals, struggling to piece together a life, searching for some kind of control. Jesus' response, one does not live by bread alone, means we're more than what we do. Now one urges us counter the temptation of relevance, the illusion of control, with a deep vulnerability. Vulnerable because, quote, God, does n- God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because he has created us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. We are created in love, and that's what we express. This irrelevance doesn't relegate us to the sidelines, but actually places us at the center, providing us with, as he says, a divine vocation that allows us to enter into solidarity with the anguish underlying the world and bring the light of Jesus there. And we know that the anguish 
is underlying the world. And it needs the light of Jesus. See, we can see things for how they really are underneath the facade of power. And Jesus' second temptation is to be powerful. The devil promises to give him authority over all kingdoms of the world. All he has to do is bow down to him. For us, this speaks to our desire for security and survival. And in some, in some outright power, but that might come from a more fearful place. The lie we tell ourselves is, I am what I have. God's preference for us is reflected in our riches, and conversely, his disdain reflects your disfavor, so there. How many times have we called ourselves the wealthiest country on earth? Is this a reflection of God's preference, or of something more sinister? Jesus' answer is simple. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Now and insists that the reason why so many people have left the church in recent times is because of its increasingly blatant desire for power, despite proclaiming the gospel, and that that is what's driving them away, instead of worshiping the Lord your God and serving only him. And for us here, lest we get too comfortable with ourselves and look down, probably with some disdain, on some of our more politicized, seemingly power-mad evangelical brothers and sisters, I'll just say I've noticed how the tenor of the political dialogue has changed here since a certain person vacated the presidency. And we must ask ourselves, were many, if not all of us, upset with the morality of it or the immorality? Or is it about power? Folks are still being held captive at the border. Income inequality is still growing. The prisons are still full. And finally, for Jesus' third temptation, the devil tempts him to throw himself off the peak of the temple so he'll be rescued in front of all his emissaries, his specialness undeniably proclaimed. For now on, this is the temptation to be spectacular, and it speaks to our need for affection and esteem. We are what others say and think about us. For Jesus' disciples and the followers, this is Jesus' Messiah come to throw out the evil Russians, I mean Romans, and restore the kingdom. Maybe that message isn't just for them. For us, this is Jesus as a magician, stuntman, with magic hands that turn water into wine that smite our enemies and give us the great, well-deserved riches. Jesus tells the devil, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put anything, yourself included, between you and God. Now one calls this vulnerability. We openly show our flaws, our weakness. We make ourselves a little unloved, a little less well-regarded. And then we ask for forgiveness. Each week we routinely recite the confession, but I sometimes wonder if in, our, in its familiarity we if we hear the words any longer? Are we trying to be so hard to be perfect that we live life at arm's length from each other instead of asking for forgiveness? Are we living life at arm's length from God? So shamed are we by our failings. Today in the afterglow of the great litany, can we open up to the full extent of our shortcomings and our cries for forgiveness? and bring us to closer to God and each other 
and not put the Lord our God to the test anymore. Chris's dad, whom we know as Bishop Kevler, appeared to share a twin love of T.S. Eliot and musical theater, as I mentioned before, and that gives me comfort. He loved the musical The Fantastics, which I find a worthy choice, one of the longest-running musicals ever, probably performed here in Conway multiple times. Now, I am a Stephen Sondheim fan. Now, you know, West Side Story, Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd, A Little Night Music, I could go on. My favorite is probably his 1970 musical company, in which a confirmed 30-something bachelor, Bobby, or in its current Broadway reprise, Bachelorette, Bobby, B-O-B-B-I, becomes a woman, sees their problems, their couple friends face and have with each other, and use that as the pretext for not falling in love. Why go to the bother if it's so much trouble? Throughout the musical, he struggles and finally overcomes his own temptations of being relevant, which for him is always playing the field, his own temptation of security in his bachelorhood, safely parked away in his apartment, and of his specialness. He's not going to bend to love. He finally overcomes those, and in the final song, we hear Bobby rejecting these temptations. He makes himself irrelevant, he makes himself insecure, he makes himself in love. Because it's life. Because it's being alive. In fact, that's the title of the final song. A stanza is, somebody crowd me with love. Somebody force me to care. Somebody let me come through. I'll always be there as frightened as you to help us survive. Being alive, being alive, being alive. This first Sunday in Lent, we are called to reject our own temptations of relevance of power and security, of affection and esteem. In the light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know what being alive truly is and will be forever. Amen.